three, two, one. Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Dr. Ira. I can't believe we're back in the studio again. It's amazing. I have a stomachache this morning. It seems like a weekly thing. Yeah, I, I have a stomachache this morning, but I've got a kind of a good gut instinct about it. <laughs> can, can anyone guess can what you, our show's about today? Yeah, I can. Our show is Gut Instinct here in Paradox, and we have a special guest this morning, Dr. Howard Monis from Digestive Care. His group is so large that they, they extend from, it's larger than the small bowel, which stretches out a long way. <laughs> Just but, so you know, he pre- he did this joke like already with Dr. Manas, and I, I, I don't even think we got like a half a chuckle, like not even, not even a half. That's okay. He's got <laughs> colleagues anywhere from Dade County up through. Lack of chuckles has never stopped you. Is that up, what you're saying? Up through the Treasure Coast. <laughs> What, like 50 doctors? About that. Did you say colic or colleagues? Colleague, <laughs> not colic. Okay. Colic. He's warming sure. up, folks. Yeah, but that, that's very good. I like that. So I want to talk to Dr. Monis a little bit. I've known Howard for, oh, I, since he came to town. He joined another gastroenterologist here many years ago and then uh, branched out. And he gets a lot of my referrals because he's so thorough. His, yeah. The patients, if, if nobody knows what's going on in someone's gut, this does. man does. So good morning, Dr. Monis. Good morning, Leanne, and good morning, Ira. So what brought you to Stewart? Well, the group I was in in Maryland imploded. Uh, it was painful. And my wife said, I am not dealing with any more winters. So we looked in the New England Journal, applied to an ad, and here we are. And what year was that? That was in 1998. So you've been here since that time and have a large practice here on the Treasure Coast. And you do the full gamut of gastroenterology, but it seems to me you have an emphasis and kind of a special feeling about liver diseases. And that might be because one of your partners retired who was a liver expert, correct? Yeah, Dr. Baskin was a board-certified hepatologist. So we did see a lot of liver disease because of his area of expertise. Uh, and I kind of uh, took that on after he retired a couple of years ago. And hepatology, there aren't a lot of people that do hepatology. Most gastroenterologists, they just want to scope. This guy, Dr. Monis, is a thinker, and that's why I like using Dr. Monis. Because if I have a difficult GI problem with a patient, they go to Dr. Monis. Well, I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. But outside of medicine, what do you like to do for fun? Well, I do enjoy uh, hanging out with my wife and dog. Uh, Emma, and I uh, love playing tennis. Dog, dog is Emma. The dog is Emma. Sh- shout wife. out to Emma. <laughs> Another Thank shout you. out to wife Debbie. Appreciate clarifying that. <laughs> uh, I have two daughters uh, who are away at school. One's away at school. One's finished, and they're uh, trying to save the planet, which is always a good thing. I hope that's working. Um, well, it's it's a process. We need the planet. And I guess by planet, you're talking the planet Earth. 
Yes. Because I know a lot of gastroenterologists, their favorite planet would be Uranus. Listen, we he's been trying all week to figure uh, out a way to uh, work that in. Oh, my God. Here we go. I have no comment. No comment. <laughs> but anyway, so we're here. And uh, so tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis as a gastroenterologist. Well, I do procedures typically in the morning. So we do upper endoscopies, lower endoscopies. Um, it's a, it's a interesting because we get to see a lot of different pathology. And then in the afternoon, we typically see patients. And that's when I do my thinking. <laughs> now, do you scope every day? I scope four days a week in the morning. We also have a nurse practitioner that helps out. So that's always good. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting because we get a chance to see patients in the office, do procedures, and we also go to the hospital sometimes. So it gives us a, a, a little variation as opposed to the internist who just kind of see patients in the office. And as a clarification for all those listening, when you say scope, we're talking about upper endoscopy mm -hmm. and colonoscopy. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We're going to get to it in, in just a little bit. And we're going to talk about some of the strangest things that you've ever found during a colonoscopy. <laughs> when I was training and before people had routine colonoscopies, we would do flexible sigmoidoscopies. We, Leanne, were you trained to do no. flexible sigmoidoscopies? No. Already standard of care to refer to gastroenterology. So the standard of care after I came out was to do a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is a much shorter scope. And if you're lucky, you can get almost up through the descending colon to where it hits that splenic flexure. It's not luck, Ira. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, you know, and that was way before I had better contact lenses and could see a little bit better. But anyway, I kept seeing this green thing staring back at me. So I flushed it with water and eventually came out. And it was the cap off of the enema. And I asked the patient, because you didn't put people to sleep for a flexible sigmoidoscopy, did he not know how to give himself an enema? He goes, yeah, I took it out of the plastic bag and I pushed really hard. But he didn't take the cap off the enema. So we fished that out of his colon. That's probably the weirdest thing I found. We'll ask Dr. Monison a little bit what he found that's weird. But hold up one sec because we're going to go into our special segment for the show, our weekly rant. This is a new segment, right? So this was this was a, a new segment. So we're giving it, we're giving it a second try, okay? So I I have been elected to do the second rant. So um I was trying to think about what kind of bothers me these days in in my field and I think that I am worried that the media might be encouraging distrust between patients and their doctors. So today my rant is about how there is a precipitous increase in the number of anti-doctor articles in the media. And why is this important to me? Well, I think that many of the negative trends we see in medicine, such as the anti-vaccine movement or the perception that physicians have a pill-pushing agenda, are rooted in the growing divide between patients and their doctors and the skepticism of science as a whole. Now, let me preface this entire argument by saying that in my current practice in direct primary care, I really don't routinely face these problems anymore because most of the patients that choose direct primary care do so because they're looking for a different, more trusting relationship 
between them and their physicians. And I also believe that I don't face as much of this currently because I treat a large number of patients older than 75, which I think is a generation that grew up in a day when they did trust their doctor and they still do. But that being said, I feel the sting of the media's headlines. So for example, an article, why do doctors overtreat? For many, it's what they're trained to do. That's the title of a report that was aired in April 2019 by NPR. And this article tells the story of a family medicine physician who describes a push for extensive testing in her residency program. And this young physician cited her own experience of treating a young man with rectal bleeding by referring him for a colonoscopy. And she lamented in the article that she felt that the bleeding was almost certainly caused by benign hemorrhoids and that watching and waiting would have been a safe alternative to invasive testing. And she's not wrong. Right. But in this article, they sort of presented the colonoscopy route as being a bad decision. Um, and the problem with that is that she was making a case for her media outlet that doctors are trained from the get go to overtreat. And the natural assumption of listeners would be that physicians, once again, cannot be trusted to make sensible decisions and instead are pushing patients to unnecessary interventions. And they've been led by the hand to this conclusion yet again by the ever present anti-doctor tone of the media. This is apparently what the media thinks the American public wants to talk about. And my question is, does that mean that Americans are anti-doctor these days? I don't think Americans are necessarily anti-doctor, but you mentioned that they don't trust their primary care physician or any physician to a certain extent. I think part of that might be that they've taken the word care out of primary care or they've taken the word care out of medicine. Because when you go to an office and it's a large practice, you may not even see the same physician every day. You may not even see the same provider. You might not see the same nurse practitioner. You may be thrown from pillar to post and not have that continuity of care, which provides trust in any doctor-patient relationship. I think with the advent of larger and larger groups and the less less time that physicians and mid-level providers spend in any practice, you know, the average physician only stays in a practice now from three to five years. I'm a dinosaur. I've been practicing in the same community for 35 years. That's rare. And people move from job to job to job. And with that, you lose trust and you lose confidence. And I think that is part of it. I think also there are a lot of alternative regimens that are promoted by Hollywood. And I think that promotion by Hollywood far outweighs what I, as a local primary care doctor, think. So I think all that has to be thrown into the mix. Overall, I think what we do is a stopgap for that distrust in medicine, but it definitely exists. And good point. I love Durant. So it's interesting. I was watching Bill Maher on Friday night, and he had a rant about doctors, and it was a negative rant. And his rant basically said, until doctors are perfect, I don't really have to listen to them. Uh, it it was kind of playing into the anti-vaccine uh, issue. So it, it was kind of interesting that you bring this up because Bill Maher basically had literally 15 minutes yeah. 
on this no, issue. No, was this satire or was he for no, real? No, he was for he real. He was for real. And do you think that this is part of this whole uh, like anti-science movement, you know, anti, anti-intelligence movement where essentially the general public is skeptical of anything coming from experts because somehow we, I mean, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of reasons why people might think that, but you know, all of these scientific experts that are regularly talking about these hot topics, GMOs, global warming, I think it's a common trend for people at these days to you know, without any hesitation, say they don't know what they're talking about, despite the years and years and years of education that the person, you know, has and the listener does not. I don't, I don't see that necessarily. I think the also, also the other issue is the advent of the internet. Everyone has access to Dr. Google. So a little knowledge is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. But his rant basically was that doctors tell people don't eat fat, don't eat sugar. And you realize 10 years later that everything has completely changed. Mm -hmm. So I think his rant just was that why should we really listen to what doctors are saying? Because it appears that they're wrong every 20 years. Hmm. Well, you know, they're, they're flat earthers all over the globe. <laughs> okay. So just as a, just as the last little piece of this rant, I, I want to say that, you know, I got the inspiration from, for this article from a Kevin MD article that was um, written by one of our DPC colleagues. And what she uh, talked about in the article is that you do not see the same media bias generally towards uh, alter like nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. In other words, you, when you type in different searches with, you know, doctor or physician plus a topic, you, you can get a couple of, you know, top hits for something with a negative connotation. But typically when you type in the word nurse or nurse practitioner, it's usually whatever the issue is, is presented in a positive light. So I think that's very interesting. I think when you give patients a chance to talk and express themselves in the office and you understand where they're coming from and they can express their point of view and they know that you've heard what they say, they're much more willing to accept your point of view. Yeah. I typically tell patients that their negative experience that they've had with doctors in the past, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, sneak into the visit kind of saying, do you, do you believe in vaccines as if it's a philosophy or, you know, a belief system? And, and I'll say, you know, I think that the negative experiences that you've had are probably related to how much time your doctor was able to spend with you and that you'll find that almost everybody is reasonable when they have enough time to actually talk about your concerns. Well, I think the two of you are an interesting contrast because of the corporate nature of medicine these days, where most doctors coming out of training are now being hired by some corporate entity. And like you said, they may stay there three years. Uh, there may be such turnover and such pressure on these doctors to see patients every 15 minutes that they can't listen to them. And they do miss things, unfortunately, in this, in, in this setting. Right. So it's do as I say or next. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the attitude. And I think that tends to promote a lot less confidence and a lot less trust in your physician. Yeah. And speaking of working for a corporation and how it affects what, how, and the way you practice, you do not, right? And I and, work for a physician-owned group. But you yourself, in, in as long as you've been practicing, have not worked for a hospital system? No, I have not. Yeah. So you practice with a high degree of autonomy. Yes. We have almost 50 doctors in our group, but every uh, every office basically can practice the way they want to as long as they're meeting certain guidelines. 
So I've been fortunate enough to be in that situation my entire career where I haven't had any um, suit, as we call them, mm-hmm. or corporate entity basically telling me how I can, how I have to practice, how many patients I have to see, what revenue I have to bring in. So as a result, I think I've been able to have a more fulfilling uh, practice. If you've just joined us on Paradox, you're listening to our special guest today, Dr. Howard Monis with Digestive Care, and the name of our show is Gut Instinct. So let's get to the show. You know, I think the bane of existence for any GI doctor or primary care doctor for that matter, Leanne, is irritable bowel syndrome. Why? Patients never get better. They always go from doctor to doctor. They doctor shop because, you know, nobody can cure my diarrhea. And sometimes I have diarrhea and sometimes I have constipation. And you know they have irritable bowel and they've been worked up multiple times. What is it? What is it? Tell us what your bowel is. So tell us what irritable bowel is, Howard. Well, the definition really is experiencing abdominal pain at least once a week associated with some sort of bowel complaint, whether it be a change in defecation, stool frequency, et cetera. Um, And this has to occur at least for three months. So that's the strict definition of irritable bowel. Now, you have to understand that about 14% of women and 9% of men in this country are affected by irritable bowel. That is an enormous number of people. So when people say they had diarrhea this morning and that's one loose watery stool, that's not even diarrhea, correct? What Define diarrhea for our listeners. Well, diarrhea is defined by volume. Uh, So just having one loose bowel movement or even two loose bowel movements doesn't necessarily define diarrhea. Most people who claim they have diarrhea simply have loose stools occasionally. And so it is a, a big problem. It's a majority of patients that... I see in the office have IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, but you have to look for alarm signs or symptoms in order to pursue a further evaluation. And what would those be? Well, we're talking about weight loss, rectal bleeding, uh, vomiting. Uh, These are uh, the kind of symptoms and signs that would precipitate a workup such as a colonoscopy or CAT scan. But most patients who are young, 25, 30, 35 years of age, and don't have these alarm signs or symptoms wouldn't necessarily need a workup to that extent. So is there a way to prove that someone has irritable bowel syndrome? It really is a diagnosis of exclusion. Meaning that? Well, you have to rule out other entities, whether it be inflammatory bowel disease um, or ischemic colitis or cancer. So you have to rule out these entities, especially in patients over the age of 40 to 50. Mm -hmm. Do we know how to treat it? Well, there's treatment for IBS and constipation. There's treatment for IBS and diarrhea predominance. These are not always successful treatments. For example, the diarrheal treatments only are successful 35 to 38% of the time, yet they've been FDA approved. So I'm not sure a lot of drugs would be approved uh, if they only had that success rate. So that would be a medication like Viberzi? Right, Viberzi or Zyfaxin. That's an antibiotic uh, that is used to treat diarrhea that may be related to bacterial overgrowth. But if they're on the Zyfaxin, then it's a very short period of time that they would be on that. Correct. It's a 14-day course with very few side effects. But again, I have personally not seen many patients respond to Zyfaxin. Now, there's a diet called the FODMAP diet, which is often used with irritable bowel. And the FODMAP diet is an incredibly difficult diet to follow. Tell Tell our listeners what the FODMAP diet is. Well, it's actually a low FODMAP diet. These are 
uh, oligosaccharides, disaccharides. These are sugars, complex sugars. sugars. Okay. Mm-hmm. And some basic sugars. And these are the kind of foods that create gas and bloating in a lot of patients. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, there's uh, examples like um, cauliflower, broccoli, um, some of the artificial sweeteners uh, like um, xylose. Um, these are the kind of products. Uh, there are fruits such as grapes, cherries, um, apples, pears. But it's a very difficult diet, and most of the patients that I put on a low FODMAP diet have very little success in actually adhering to that over the long term. If they adhere to it, is there can they see? Do most people see improvement? I think that some people do. Some people do see improvement, mainly in the issue of gas and bloating. Mm-hmm. I don't think they necessarily see improvement in the issues of constipation or diarrhea. That's really more for patients that have the gas and bloat issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in general, would you say that you see other you know, common dietary indiscretions that lead to gas and bloating other than the foods that are on the FODMAP list? Yeah, I think that patients, I always ask if they're drinking carbonated beverages. Um, But actually, a a main issue for gas and bloating is what we call aerophagia or just swallowing air. Uh, These are patients that tend to be anxious or depressed or they tend to eat too quickly. Um, So I think that is also an issue. Mm-hmm. So with this chronic abdominal pain and some of the older treatments like bento or just antihistamines, things that slow the gut down, are those still, for lack of a better term, in use or in vogue now? Some people do benefit from medications such as bental, which is an antispasmodic. So we still do use those. But to be honest with you, if you look at the guidelines, there is not a lot of evidence that they work very well. And how much psychological overlay as a gastroenterologist do you find in irritable bowel patients? Well, there is a very significant psychological overlay. So these are issues that have to be ferreted out. Uh, Sometimes what happens is you do a workup and you're able to prove that there's nothing seriously wrong with the patient. They don't have cancer, inflammatory bowel disease. And oftentimes that is helpful psychologically because a lot of times these patients feel like there is definitely something wrong with me. So if you're able to prove to a certain extent that there is no life-threatening illness, they often get better just because of that. But it's not curable. Do you ever see people with irritable bowel just get totally better? They, they can get better. If stress in, and depression are causing uh, their irritable bowel, then they may be just going through a stressful situation. And once they're out of that stressful situation, their bowel complaints may get better. Do you ever find that treating them with medication is a reasonable approach, even if they're not completely sold on the idea that they're depressed? I think that that is an important last process, last step. So first of all, you do go through it, uh, treatments such as fiber treatments such as a peppermint oil extract like IBGARD. So once we get beyond those basic treatments, then using a low-dose antidepressant may be useful. So for all of you listening, we are talking to Dr. Howard Monis. Our show is called Gut Instinct. We are going to take a little bit of a commercial break, and we'll be back with some more questions.
No, but much better. Yeah. So. And we're back. And as I'm watching my uh, sound technician destroy the board here with all the buttons popping off, it's a sight to behold. You'll have to watch it on the YouTube video. But we're back with Dr. Howard Monitz here on WSTU, our show today on Paradox Gut Instinct. Howard, let's talk about proton pump inhibitors, a treatment commonly used for treatment of ulcers because they inhibit acid and they're being overused. So other than ulcers or what they call Barrett's esophagus, and I want you to explain to our listeners what that is, is there any indication for prolonged use of these proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, protonics, Prilosec, et cetera? Right. I think a lot of patients get put on proton pump inhibitors when they see their primary care doctor. And they come in complaining of heartburn, indigestion, dyspepsia, and these medications work very well. The problem is they work so well that the patients forget or are not ever told to go off the medication. But you're right. As far as long-term therapy, patients with Barrett's esophagus, which is a chronic acid reflux-induced damage of the esophagus that can slightly increase the risk of esophageal cancer and beyond other diseases, which are some you know, more rare disease or diseases like Zollinger-Ellison, um, there's really no great utility for using PPIs long-term. Now, people do have chronic reflux, and the main component that causes reflux is actually being overweight. So it is very difficult to get patients to lose weight. So patients who have chronic reflux, sometimes they can't come off the PPIs. So yeah, I mean, have you ever tried to take those away? I mean, I mean, like you could do anything, but don't take away my Nexium. Well, the other thing is that you can't stop them abruptly, where people go through literally uh, an increased acid situation where they have worse heartburn. So then they actually feel like they can never stop them. So I get yelled at by a patient a couple of weeks ago because I finally convinced him to go off of his proton pump inhibitor, and that. Zantac or generic ranitidine would be a better choice. And of course, the next day they took it off the market because it was contaminated. Right, right. But how was I going to know, right? <laughs> so do H2 blockers work as well as PPIs? Well, the PPIs reduce the acid by about 92 to 95%, and the H2 blockers may get up to 78%. So the other issue is the H2 blockers have to be taken more often. Now, there's been a lot of negative press about PPIs lately. There have been reports about increase in bone loss, increase in dementia, cardiac disease. And once we ferret out these studies, we find out that basically the main issue with PPIs is an increase in infections, which we call enteric infections, which may be infections like E. coli. Which gut we, infections. Gut infections, right. especially if you're going to uh, third world countries. And there may be a slight increase in the risk of a, a kidney issue. But beyond that, the PPIs are relatively safe medications. Now, at one time, they said that 
prolonged use of these proton pump inhibitors can cause increased incidence of gastric polyps. Is that across the board or is that just in a special population that you get these polyps in your stomach? Well, the polyps are typically benign and you do definitely see an increase in gastric polyps. But again, the risk of cancer in these types of polyps is very low. We don't see patients dropping like flies from gastric cancer. And the proton pump inhibitors are one of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the country. Okay, okay I, I have a question. Okay. It's super in vogue right now to talk about gut flora. What are, what are your opinions about that topic? Because obviously the people that are you know, into the idea that our gut flora determine our immune system, et cetera, and that um, PPIs change our gut flora, that these topics might be related. What and everyone needs a probiotic. And everyone needs a probiotic right. and everyone needs to eat prebiotic foods to feed the gut, the proper gut flora. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of research going on right now about gut flora. So I think we're at the literally embryonic stage of understanding gut flora. We do know that PPIs can alter the gut flora, and there is an increased risk of an infection called C. diff, which is definitely uh, can be a lethal infection in elderly patients. So patients who take PPIs regularly have an increased risk of this infection. But as far as the probiotics are concerned, there's been really no great evidence that they prevent something like C. diff. There hasn't been any great evidence that they alter uh, the course of um, inflammatory bowel disease at this point. So I think that there also have been a lot of negative studies about um, probiotics because not all probiotics are the same. I have patients come in the office and go, I'm taking this probiotic. There's billions of them. And I say, well, billions of what? And they don't know. So uh, we just don't know. They're not regulated over the counter. And I think that we need a lot more research about probiotics. So the title of our show is Gut Instinct. Do you do you have a gut instinct on what's going to happen? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen? What is the research potentially in your mind going to ferret out? I think that there's going to be a significant um uh, significant studies that show that the gut flora and altering the gut flora can cause inflammatory bowel disease and other diseases of uh, the gut and even some rheumatologic and autoimmune diseases. So, now, so now wait explain a what inflammatory bowel disease, you mean like Crohn's disease and ulcerative, ulcerative colitis. colitis. Right, right. So maybe even the better question for you to really determine your gut instinct would be how do you eat? Well, I try to eat very healthfully. There's no doubt that uh, that prebiotics such as inulin and uh, fiber, asparagus, these things are very important to feed the gut flora. And I actually have a snack every day of yogurt and granola. So I think you can get good probiotics out of just a plain Greek yogurt. You don't have to necessarily go buy some of these over-the-counter agents that may cost $50, $60 a month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Dr. Oz did a whole show, shout out to Dr. Oz, because he does provide some pretty decent information, but he did a whole show. You're desperate for Dr. Oz to be on the on show. On what people's poop. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen to you if Dr. Oz called you right now asking to be on Paradox? We've got a waiting list. <laughs> he <laughs> did call already. Right. You'll have to get in line. So, you know, he, he was talking about, he did a whole show on poop. Okay on what your poop should look like. Oh, I'm it, certain there were examples, right? That the size of it, that it should be long and it should look like a log. And Howard, tell us what you think <laughs> poop should look like from a gastroenterologist standpoint to be healthy looking poop. 
Wow, that's uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a crappy question, isn't it? I I think that uh, a log is a good example of what your poop should look like. I'm going to tell and you, I have a poop chart in my office. It is people's favorite thing. Yeah. Like they want to show me where they are on yeah. the chart. And I think also patients come in and they tell you they're constipated, they have diarrhea, et cetera, and they, they want to know what's the normal for pooping. And you can poop two or three times a day, or you can poop every two or three days. And that's the norm. Uh, so there's a wide variation of how people can poop. Right. So moving right along then. <laughs> okay. You know, Beethoven's third movement was yeah. probably his bowel movement, but... Moving right along, change in poop is a warning sign of colon cancer, as well as bleeding, weight loss, uh, fatigue. Colon cancer is the third most common cancer in both men and in women. Is colon cancer more prevalent in Western society than the rest of the world? Well, I think it is somewhat more prevalent. The one thing we do know is more prevalent is diverticulosis. So we do see that more commonly in America than in Asian countries, for example. Uh, but it is a it is a big issue in our country uh, because it is the third leading cause of cancer, like you said. And in men and women, sometimes women think, well, I'm not going to get colon cancer. It's a man disease. It's not true at all. Are there are there certain dietary trends in countries that have a higher incidence of colon cancer? Yeah, eating meat is def red meat is definitely an increased risk for colon cancer. Uh, you can also they have just came out with a study that said it wasn't. So who do you believe? And that's maybe what goes back to your rant. Are we believable? Are we telling people the right thing? Because I've told people for years that eating meat or a lot of meat is a risk for colon cancer. Doctor Monish just repeated that and substantiated that. But yet an article came out within the last month that said, no, nope, not true. Yeah. I, I think that there are certain things that people do like smoking and eating a lot of red meat, which definitely can increase the risk of, of these cancers. And we do see an increased risk, for example, in gastric cancer and esophageal cancer with use of nitrates. Uh, with smoked foods, uh, it is definitely more common in Asia than it is in, in our country. And what about fiber? Do you think that uh, diets that have higher fiber contents are, you know, lowering colon cancer risks? Well, I'm not sure we've been able to absolutely prove that. For example, going back to diverticulosis, it used to be thought, hey, let's have people eat all the fiber they can to prevent diverticulosis. And that's not really ever been able to be proven either. So to our listeners who are listening to Howard Monis this morning, diverticulosis are the little pouches in the colon. When they become inflamed, that's when people get into trouble, and that's diverticulitis. I just wanted to let our listeners know the difference because when the gastroenterologist scopes you and says you have diverticulosis, you didn't tell me, doctor, I had diverticulosis because it's not symptomatic. Diverticulitis, when these areas get inflamed, it becomes symptomatic, and therein is the big difference. But is diverticulosis a forerunner or a precursor of colon cancer? No, it's not. It's not. And I do a lot of procedures on patients over the age of 70, and most of them have diverticulosis. Again, that is probably due to the diet that we follow here. Meaning we don't 
typically have enough fiber or that we eat too much red meat or all of the above? Well, it's diverticulosis develops because of increased pressure in the colon, which typically is because of not eating enough fiber. Mm -hmm. And are we talking about grain fiber or vegetable fiber or well, both? Well, we're talking about any kind of fiber. The best fiber is probably a psyllium husk fiber. So, but again, uh, I think that the American diet, I think any fiber that we can get in the American diet is better than what we're doing right now. And do you think that that is directly related to how many patients complain of constipation? It is definitely one of the issues. Uh, hydration and use of fiber probably is a major issue as, as far as constipation is concerned. Well, while we have you here this morning as our expert, review with us the guidelines for screening for colon cancer. Right. Well, the guidelines currently are for patients over the age of 50 to obtain uh, a colonoscopy or uh, other tests that can be done would be a virtual colonoscopy or a Cologuard test. Uh, the sigmoidoscopies have fallen out of favor because we now see more right-sided colon cancers as opposed to left-sided colon cancers. Now, our societies have actually requested that we begin screening at 45 because we're seeing more cancer in younger patients these days. I, I read where millennials are starting to show up with colon cancer. Do we know why that might be? We don't understand that concept of why we're seeing more cancer in 35 and 40 year old people. Uh, but that's what prompted the recommendation to start screening at 45. The insurance companies and Medicare have not gone along with those re recommendations because of cost concerns. Yeah, because it's an expensive procedure, right? A colonoscopy. What is the typical cash pay price? Well, a colonoscopy, as far as our fees are concerned, typically for Medicare, we get paid about $300, which sounds like a very reasonable fee. But when you start adding up the facility fee, the anesthesia, any pathology, et cetera, it can cost up to twelve dollars to $1,500 to have a colonoscopy. So they've come up with other tests, and one of those tests are or is the Cologuard test, and you see it on advertised on television all the time. Patients like it. It's a pretty easy test to do, right? The company sends you a kit. You uh, collect a stool sample into a kit, mail it off, and they yeah. look through the stool so for abnormal findings, poop, right? Poop in a box. Pros and cons, Howard. Well, the Cologuard test is looking for DNA mutations. So there are some positives for the Cologuard test. As Leanne said, it is a non-invasive test. It is costly. The cost is about $650 for the test. So that is definitely a, um, a negative. The other negatives are that there's about a 12% false positive rate. That means that for every 100 people who have a positive test, 12 will actually have nothing found on their colonoscopy. So there in is Inclusive of polyps? Nothing. Zero. Nothing. Right. Uh, so it is a pretty good test for picking up advanced colon cancer, uh, almost as good as a colonoscopy. But the problem is that the Cologuard becomes a screening test for colon cancer itself and not polyps because it only picks up small polyps about a third of the time and larger polyps about two thirds of the time. So we try to get polyps out before they turn into cancer. Now, would they only pick up the precancerous polyps or any polyp? The precancerous type. And the Cologuard has to be done every three years as opposed to a colonoscopy that's recommended every 10 years because, again, you don't want to wait until it's too late, meaning you're picking up an advanced colon cancer that's already spread because that's what the Cologuard said is positive. So do you think that the guidelines could potentially change where they recommend Cologuard 
exclusively without colonoscopy? I mean, what are the advantages of having a colonoscopy? Well, the advantages of a colonoscopy are that you're able to remove any polyp that you find. Uh, the second advantage is that you're actually getting direct visualization of the colon. Which means you can diagnose other conditions other than colon cancer, Correct. like diverticulosis, which might be asymptomatic, but in the future, it would be nice to know if the patient had it. Correct. If a patient presents to your office with left lower quadrant pain and you know that the colonoscopy demonstrated diverticulosis in that area, it's a much easier diagnosis to make. Mm -hmm. But right now, the current guidelines do offer Cologuard every three years as a single screening test for colon colon cancer. And you think someone who is low risk, certainly I don't recommend it for folks who are high risk. And I don't think Leanne does either. Although. No. And I love for them to have had a prior negative colonoscopy before. I, right. But if they're low risk, no family history of colon cancer, specifically in a first degree relative, meaning brother, sister, mother, or father did not have colon cancer, then, and they are adverse to having an invasive procedure done because colonoscopy is an invasive procedure. It does have a complication rate. I believe one in every thousand will thousand bleed. Thousand or so, right. And one in every 10,000 will perforate. The, the overall per risk is probably between one in a thousand to one in 2,000. Uh, to perforate? Well, to Or perforate. to bleed? No, to any complication. To any complication. And one in a hundred thousand will die. I mean, those were the statistics last I looked at them. Right. So I think that currently it, it is not indicated to use Cologuard in anybody who has an increased risk. It's actually not even paid for in that situation. So as you said, in the family history or personal history, you wouldn't want to order a Cologuard test at all. I typically use a Cologuard if someone is, let's say, 80 years old. Uh, it is covered up until the age of 85. So, or if they're on blood thinners, it's probably a reasonable test to do if they're in a low risk category so they don't have to stop their blood thinner for a colonoscopy. But it will be positive for blood, correct? A colon well, guard? it's not going to turn out positive just for blood. It, blood is used as part of the test, mm -hmm. but in order for it to be positive, the DNA mutation has to show up. That's good news. Now, that's real good news. And I wasn't aware of that. See, every time I do one of these shows, I just learn more and more. And that's why we like doing these it's shows. It's a very slow way to learn things, though, I will say. Oh, once a week, I learn yeah, one Yeah, well, once a week, after we prepare for hours, we learn something on the show. Right. So here's my next. I'm learning. Yeah, I'm just yeah. sitting here as a pastor. Frank, you're going to take your boards at the end I, of this I just, series. I just don't want any more buttons popping off that board. It reminds me of that Saturday Night Live episode where Ooh. the guy spilled the Pepsi at the nuclear plant. And, you know, there was that huge explosion yeah. at the end. I don't want to end up no. blowing up the studio here, Frank. So question, Howard. If your dad had colon cancer or a brother had colon cancer, you should be screened 10 years earlier at, than the age that that person was diagnosed or just 10 years earlier than usual. So instead of 50, you're screened at 40. But if they were diagnosed with colon cancer at 45, are you being screened at 35? What are the guidelines? Yeah, currently what I do is uh, if someone has a first degree relative with colon cancer, and let's say they're less than 60 years of age, I'll begin screening them at 40. If they have colon cancer and a first degree relative at 45, you probably want to start at 40 or five years younger than the, the youngest person with colon cancer. So that's the way I work it. Okay. We're going to shift gears. 
Yeah, we want to talk about hep C. So uh, there's a new recommendation to screen baby boomers for hepatitis C. So I think that some of our listeners may have that on the radar a little more than previously. Um, Do you treat hep C? And do you treat it differently than you used to? uh, Well, of course, I I do treat hep C. And actually, there was just an article in the newspaper either today or yesterday that recommended screening all adults for hepatitis C because there are so many patients out there with hep C that don't know they have hep C. So starting at the age of? Probably 18. Yeah. And it's interesting because it seems like there's a gap. So, you know, if I see a younger patient population, I typically do STD screening, which includes a hepatitis panel. So I guess, you know, in some instances, younger people are getting well, I hep think, screening. I think with the opioid crisis, we're see- I am seeing more uh, hep C in younger patients. And especially in this area... Uh, up in St. Lucie County, where there's more uh, intravenous drug use, we are definitely seeing more hep C in 19, 20, even 17 and 18 year old people. So just for all the listeners who may not know anything about hepatitis, can you give us a brief overview of hepatitis ABC? Yeah, well, hepatitis A is something we've seen locally. Uh, we're not in uh, in an epidemic, but we have seen a lot more cases here in Martin County. There are about 2000 in Florida probably around 35 or 40 here. Uh, It's been receiving a lot of publicity because about five people have died from hepatitis A, which is very unusual. And it's transmitted fecal oral? Fecal oral, right. Explain what that means. Well, you may get it from someone working in a restaurant who has hepatitis A and has not washed their hands adequately. So that's probably the most common way, or if it can be transmitted through family members, uh, if they're not washing their hands or in appropriate fashion. Oysters don't have hands. Why, why, do, why do oysters carry hepatitis A? Yeah, I don't know. Why do Shellfish. Oysters? I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure why they carry hepatitis but, but A. But you see hepatitis A outbreaks a lot. In fact, my whole medical school class, half the class had hepatitis A after an oyster roast. It was oh, because you're you're the South Carolina because it was from South Carolina. But hepatitis A is generally it just resolves on its own after a couple weeks or maybe a month or two. Correct. It's typically just a a a basic viral infection where you may feel poorly for uh, a week or so and then recover pretty easily. And hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is more seen in the Orient, in uh, in Asia, um, but it, it can be transmitted actually from the parent to the child, especially in, in Asia. And we do see immigrants to this country uh, who have uh, latent or hidden hepatitis B. So, so body fluids. Well, it's, it's a body fluid transmission. Is what blood, you're yes. Yeah. Uh, it can be transmitted uh, sexually as well, especially in gay individuals. Um, so I think that anybody who is has emigrated from an Asian country, even if they're 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, it doesn't matter. They should be tested for hepatitis B. Well, let's back up as to, and you had mentioned that it's transmitted more easily in gay individuals. That's because the colon or the, the rectal surface has such a huge absorptive capacity, correct? Right. That's part of it. As opposed to the vaginal mucosa. Yes. Okay. And then hepatitis C, what's the biggest source of transmission? Well, typically it's intravenous drug use. Um, it used to be blood transfusions, but now we're testing for that, so we don't see that as commonly. That was a board question on my last board. Do you know what the answer was? Cocaine. Because yeah, they would share spoons, and the spoons would have droplets of blood on it when they snorted the cocaine. So I've never done IV drugs, doctor. Well, have you done cocaine? Right. And that should be a part of our Absolutely. And tattoos. 
tattoos as well, you can get hepatitis C if it's not an accredited tattoo parlor. But there are treatments for hepatitis B, which are great, um, but the treatments for hepatitis C are even better because the treatments for hepatitis B usually are lifelong and can be pretty expensive. And there's a vaccine for hepatitis A and hepatitis B, Correct. but not for C? Not for C, that's right. Are they working on one? They are. They just the, the virus mutates so easily that they haven't been able to come up with a vaccine. Now, there's six different types of hepatitis C, correct? Right. The most common in this country is hepatitis type uh, is type 1, and that's probably about 75 or 80 percent of what we see. And the treatments are very good. The success rate is up to 98 to 99 percent. We used to treat with a medicine called interferon and ribavirin, which made people sick for an entire year. It was horrible. And the success rate was probably only about 35 to 40 percent. Now we have oral medications taken once daily with success rates up to 98, 99 percent. Why is it important to detect it and treat it? What are the complications of hepatitis C? Right. Well, the, the major complication in long term hepatitis C is going to be cirrhosis. And cirrhosis means that the liver is very scarred. And then we can see an increase in liver cancer, which is the most deadly complication that you see from cirrhosis. Okay. And the cost of treatment uh, in a patient who doesn't have insurance, can, can they even afford to get it treated? Well, there are a lot of programs available for treatment for hepatitis C. I sometimes tell patients maybe the best thing to do is go abroad to Egypt and stake out for eight weeks and get their treatment in Egypt. But not many people have done that. <laughs> you, you know what, Howard? You, you have been a great guest. Can we bring you back? We didn't even get through everything we need to talk. The GI tract just has so much. If Let, <laughs> let's stay on the right track with the GI tract and come back and let's do a part two to the show. If I have to, I will. Okay, wait, you promise? Wait, tell us how we can get a hold of Dr. Mon and <laughs> yeah, we need to see I, him as a patient. Right. The office phone number is 772 781 Five nine six zero, and where our office is on Indian Street between uh, US One and uh, Willoughby. Here, right here in Stewart. Right here in Stewart. Thank you, everybody. This has been another episode of Paradox Gut Instinct. We'll see you next week. <laughs>